0: Hello and welcome to the Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Deeksha Gera and I cover the global fintech and payments industry for BI. Today, we're very pleased to have Enrique Dubugras, co-founder of Brex, along with Pedro Franceschi. Welcome, Enrique. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for being here. Enrique, you've come a long way from starting Ask Me Out, that was a matchmaking program in Brazil at a young age of 16, And then in 2013, you and Pedro built a payments company called Pagar.me that processed about one and a half billion dollars in transactions. Then you sold that in just three years and came to the Bay Area and enrolled at Stanford. That's a pretty stark transition in itself. Please tell us about your journey and also about your past ventures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my journey started as a coder um, when I was 12 years old because there was this game, in Portuguese gambling and gaming is the same word, so and there was this game I wanted to play, and it was paid, and my parents didn't want to really pay it for me. So I figured out if I learn how to code, I could play it for free. And that's kind of how my tech interest started, because I just wanted to play this game. And then I, I built kind of like a pirate version of this game that got really popular in Brazil, because they could people could play for free. And pay for items inside the game instead of paying a subscription. And uh, that got very popular until I got some legal notifications saying I was breaking some sort of patent. So I didn't really know what patents were, but my mom got super upset and told me to shut everything off. So um that was kind of the, the way it all started. But, you know, that changed my life because now I was 14 and I knew how to code. I was into tech. And uh, you know, from there I, I, I Went to work at a startup, you know, kind of, uh, and then tried to start my own startup but failed in education, and did ask me out as a hackathon project, uh, as I mentioned. Until so in 2013, we started Pagarme, which was kind of a like stripe of Brazil. So we um, we did that business, sold it, and, and, and came to the U.S. And it was a uh, it was a lot of you know for us it seemed like a a long journey until we got here, but a lot of even yeah. before, Brex.
0: Well, that is the ultimate dream of parents of today, right? My seven-year-old bogs me to play Minecraft pretty much all day long. So there is some light at the end of that tunnel. Serial entrepreneurs are arguably considered to be more successful because they've made like mistakes earlier on and those lessons are very valuable for their later ventures. What were some of the big mistakes you made there? And what were some of the learnings that came along from them, especially Pagar.me?
1: Yeah, I... Um... You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I think a lot of people look at Brex and how fast it all went. And it seemed like that, you know, overnight success, you know, 10 years in the making. And for me, Pagame, for me and Pedro, it was like a massive, like, learning experience, you know, building like a real business. Um, So we actually only raised $300,000. That was the only money that we actually ever raised for the company. And we needed to become profitable soon because we couldn't raise any more money. You know, Brazil wasn't like the US where there were like tons of venture capitalists willing to give money to 16 year olds. So we sold uh, 30% of the company for, sorry, 60% of the company for $300,000. And for those in tech, that's not a very good valuation for, for a seed round. And I think what we were lucky there is that this first investor of ours kind of was like very um, close. You know, he also had started a business when he was young. And then, you know, if he was young himself, I think he was 28, 29. And so he really took to be kind of like our entrepreneurship father, you know, like he was teaching us how to hire, how to fire, how to do product. And we were teaching him a lot of stuff. He was, he was not technical and we were technical. So we were reading about all the new things that were coming out. And, um, and they had this really good kind of like synergy, but, you know, we still very blessed that we had someone that really helped teach us a lot of stuff, but that didn't make us skip our own mistakes. I would say that, um, you yeah, know, we can, we could list a number of them, but I would say, Probably the the biggest learnings is when you have that focus on profitability and very early on, you need to find product market fit really quickly. You know, I remember by the end we were running out of money and we had three months to either get break even or not. And to do that, we had to have the highest sales month we ever had every month, and we just went you know incredibly hard at it and. We really need to find what our customers willing to pay for, because if they're not willing to pay for it, then it doesn't matter. And I think that kind of forced this muscle of really being customer focused and finding product market fit, right?
0: Well, that's such a valuable point. And also, I think in terms of for startup, timing is everything, right? Like if you just see how the Latin American fintech scene has kind of evolved over the years. So um, would you do anything differently if you were to do that today?
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, things worked out great. So, you know, you can only, like Steve Jobs says, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. But at the time when we decided to sell the company, one of the reasons we decided to sell was that there wasn't actually any Brazilian unicorns. Like, it didn't really seem like we could build a big business. Like, Nubank, they actually started, like, right next door to us. Um, and they were still not super big. Um, and there's a couple other companies. And then it seemed that everything, the big and impactful, was coming out of the U.S., so we felt we had to go. I think, you know, if we had known that you could build a business as big as New Bank and as successful from Brazil, maybe we wouldn't have found, you know. And I, I'm happy we came, but, you know, the circumstances of the time maybe would have been different. I don't regret it at all, though.
0: Yeah. Well, Latin America's losses, Silicon Valley's gains. So, so you landed in Palo Alto in 2016, and then Within a matter of months, you had been accepted to the Y Combinator batch based on the concept of a virtual reality startup, from what I understand. You raised seed money for the idea from a firm CEO and PayPal co-founder, Max Lefkin. That's not an easy feat for an immigrant who's sort of an outsider and so new to the ecosystem. So how did that happen?
1: I would say that um. A couple of things. So first we got to Silicon Valley and we were like, we're never going to do fintech again. We hate this FinTech thing. Um, all these banks and regulators, you want to do something that's in the bleeding edge of Silicon Valley, you know, like the VR seemed like that thing, the next generation of computing. So we applied to YC and I would say like, if you, you know, we're very close to YC today. If you ask the guy uh, who approved us, he would say, we you didn't get invited. idea. Yeah, we were just impressed that you built this payment company when you're 17, and so they, they they accepted us for that, our, our kind of like entrepreneurship history. And uh, once we got in, we kind of pivoted back to fintech because we were like, we don't have no idea what we're doing. You know, like fintech is how we actually know? So that's kind of how we 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 got to fintech. But from and then after we decided that it's when we decided to raise money. But what happened is the previous quarter at Stanford, we always heard that like recruiting in Silicon Valley is the hardest thing. It's so hard to recruit, and it is really hard. So we decided to like, okay, like let's. Why don't we go to the Stanford recruiting chair, and we apply for engineering jobs and go through the recruiting process to see if you know how hard it is, and maybe we learn something. And honestly, most companies actually said no, I don't want to talk to you um, because we we're a So you know, we and we didn't want to stay our background because that would kinda of like blur the processes a bunch. So we just wanted to see what's the regular process that an engineer goes and so one of these companies I could talk to us was a firm, max's Company. Um and we kinda of went through the process and in the end, you know, we like, said, hey, we don't really want to work here, but like we're plus to be back. Um and he yeah, actually took a meeting with us and said, hey, if you guys whatever you guys decide to build, you know, let me know. I'd love to you know take a look. And then when we started Brex we reached out and you know he kinda of became one of the first investors.
0: Wow, that's such an interesting story. And I mean, as they say, the Valley ethos encourages trying out different things, and it's okay to make mistakes, and I think that's what makes it the innovation capital um, in some ways, right? So this is the point where Brex was born, and, and why don't you talk to us about what was the initial idea, and how did that come about, and how was Y Combinator kind of involved in that in that thought process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 you know, I, I want to be just also a little bit realistic about Silicon Valley, and you know, you mentioned it being an outsider and all that. I think Silicon Valley loved its brands, you know. Um, and I think the fact that we had, we're at Stanford and we went to Y Combinator, that was like, they just like love that, you know. And um, I met so many other founders that were just as smart as we were, but they didn't have the credentials and, you know, they didn't get the same opportunity. So every time someone from Brazil is coming, it was like, figure out a way to and get it. associated with these brands because like people really like them here. And, you know, you can say it's fair or unfair, but it is what it is. And, you know, we're just kind of like super pragmatic about it. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to call that out. So I think it's not like uh, we're kind of aware of that. And, you know, and it was a little bit more thought out than it kind of seemed to stumble on. But I think that's something that's important for, for people to know.
0: Yes. And you did not complete your your uh, thing at Stanford, right?
1: No, no. We dropped out after we started so six months in or so. Um, but the story of how Breck started was, we we were in Y Combinator, and we decided to kind of pivot to this um, out of VR, right? And, you know, we went to a partner, and they basically said, hey, what do we actually want to build? I'm like, well, what we actually want to build is like a B2B bank, a next-gen B2B bank, because at Fagarm, we were paying, processing payments, and, you know, we decided that we wanted to... You know, the next step for us there was like doing a B2B bank because we we're paying into business bank accounts. So it was natural that we would just keep the money there and make payments out of there. But we sold the company before we got to execute on it. And the company that bought us after execute on it. this company is still in Brazil. And then, so why don't we do that at the UF? And but then talking to other founders, they're like, okay, like we can't really find why people would trust their money of these random Brazilians that, you know, just got Silicon Valley. Um, so uh we looked at Noonbank in Brazil and we made third credit cards. And I thought that's smart. Like, why don't they we do that? And then I think talking to YC, they were like, Yeah, like credit cards for startups have never been solved, a bunch of people have issues. And we we're like, and we went to talk to a bunch of startups and turns out, yeah, they had raised like five million dollars and they couldn't get a credit card. I was like, oh, that makes no sense at all. Like how how is that even possible? Um and that's hence where the first idea of Rex credit card for startups started out.
0: Yes, I can kind of relate with that, even though I'm not a startup founder. But when I landed first in the US, I was told I was blessed that I could have a bank account. And I had like a well-established financial history, but not in the US. Uh, So I can well imagine, like, despite my salary statements, if I can't get a bank account for startups who don't even have like proper documentation, or even sometimes no revenue to show, um, why that could be a challenge. So Brex claims to be the first fully unified global spend platform with corporate cards, expense management, reimbursements, bill pay, and travel all in one. The company offers business credit cards and cash management accounts to startups. That's how you started. And then you've extended into expense management software last year and integrated travel in partnership with Spotnana this year. We'll go through each of these subcategories a little bit more in detail later, but what is the broader disruption that you're trying to bring about uh, with Brex?
1: I think that, you know, if you think about your experience and every other piece of software with your company, right, like it's it's pretty good, right? Like Slack's pretty good and then, you know, you're opening a collaboration software, or sauna and etc. And for some reason, finance, like that never happened, right? Like every piece of software that you touch to has to do with finance, it's always terrible. And we always ask ourselves and kind of like our core belief is, the reason that's true is because in finance, there's always the bank in the other side, right? Like it's always like someone interacting with the bank. So we believe that the only way to make that experience truly great for users and finance teams is by vertically integrating what the bank does and what the software does. And bringing all of that into one place that we call the kind of like financial operating system, right? So I think that's the the disruption. Is like if we want to want to change how finance works, uh, we can't just do the software because we need to integrate all these financial service rails. And bringing all of them in one place is kind of where the value and and the magic lies.
0: That's great. So so what are the companies that are serving some of those needs that you're trying to kind of do a better job at? And um, what are the areas that you're kind of going after right now?
1: So right now, um, if you look at uh, who we're displacing in most of our deals, it's concurrent Amex, right? So that traditional corporate card stack of you get a corporate Amex and you get a concurrent piece of software to do your expenses. That's what I say we're replacing day in and day out. Um, with a much better kind of like integrated experience of RECs with expense, card, and travel. Um, and also I would say on the banking side, you know, that's something that actually grew a lot recently given all the recent phenomena uh, disrupting the operational piece of payment. So paying your bills, running payroll, you know, all the kind of like day-to-day stuff, not the big loaning, lending stuff, or, you know, just complicated treasury management, but the actual like day-to-day payment operations and that you have to do, you know, that cash reconciliation, et cetera, that's also we're automating with kind of both the financial services and the bill pay software that we have attached to it. Awesome.
0: So we'll come to those individual categories in a bit, but just in terms of your client base, so Brex started with catering to fellow startups, and I hear it soon became a rage within the Y Combinator startup ecosystem you then had a brief stint with traditional smbs which you later exited and now you're in the process of extending to enterprise clients so from your vantage point could you talk to us about these segments in particular and what characteristics of these segments influenced your choices perhaps let's start with the startups itself
1: yeah for sure so if you think about why brex started startups is because they had such an acute name that even if the product wasn't like fully complete they were willing to use it right so I'll give an example. Scale AI, which is a big kind of like AI company today, actually is uh, was our first customer back in uh, 2017. And uh, Alex, the founder, was 19 years old and actually didn't have a cycle, so he couldn't get a credit card. So for him, like no matter how bad the product is, just getting a credit card that he gets to use everywhere—that's already like so much better than not having one—that um, he was willing to sign up. Right. So the value proposition for these startups were so strong because we had this like super differentiated underwriting model Um, but at some point we kind of ran out of startups you know we have like pretty big market share Um, you know we're the leader in the space for a long time now so we needed to find out where do we expand and there was a couple there was kind of like three options we could go to one of them was we just go hey we did startups let's go to another vertical let's say e-commerce so we tried that the other thing is like, okay, like startups are like small businesses. So why don't we do any small business? So we try that. And then the other thing is like, hey, these startups are growing and they're becoming mid midsize in larger companies and kind of like enterprises. We also want to do that. And we actually try to do all of them at the same time, you know, which we can talk more about as kind of why that didn't work. But um, today, you know, we mostly serve the startup clients. Then we would say the mid-sized clients. So people, let's say, with at least 50 to 100 employees. To and kind of like the enterprises as well.
0: That's great. I think tech inventor-backed startups surely kind of form a very interesting category because we have some really um, smart, like experienced people kind of working into these completely new one-man couple of people kind of shops. And so so there is a level of sophistication and there is not, right? So, so it's kind of an interesting mix uh, from that perspective. But the transition to small, medium businesses. So what happened with that? Like, We see that you had about 50,000 customers as of March last year, and then that dropped to about 20,000 plus right now. I presume a fair bit of that was just shedding off the some of that SMB segment and also some sort of client purge. So what were some of the challenges that you were facing, and what was the final trigger that prompted you to exit that segment?
1: Yeah. So basically, the main challenge was doing all of this at the same time. And the problem is these things didn't converge. So when we talked to the like small businesses, the main thing that they wanted was capital. So we talked to them like, what can we build for you? And they would say, loans. And then when we talked to startups, right? Like, what can we build for you? And they would say, well, all these features that I need to be able to scale with you. Because now I was 10 people when I drawing. Now I'm 100, 200, 500, 1,000. And like I don't need loans. Like I don't need any of this. And the, you know, the small businesses were like, oh, I want like just easier because like I'm the one doing it, right? Like I'm the person actually doing the payments day to day, et cetera. The servers are like, well, my finance here is doing, they need a set of controls and things that, you know, they need to be able to scale. So the, the kind of like feature pipeline didn't really converge. And we were basically almost splitting the company in two. And that kind of, we looked at that and said, hey, we won't be able to be successful at any of them. And then when we looked at like who our core customer is, was the startup. So we had, if we had to pick, we picked the customer that we started and that was our core business and got us there. So that's why we decided to kind of like stop serving them and focus on these like startups, mid-market enterprise. But what we found is a lot of the, even outside of startups, when a startup gets to 200 people or 500 or 1,000 or 5,000, the needs that they have are actually pretty similar to any other company of the same size. Um, so we were able to then expand a product that we build for them when they grow to any company that's like slightly larger and needs the set of features that we have.
0: Is it fair to say that your core competence in this aspect would be agility and ability to scale and that was kind of playing more strongly to like tech first companies? Is that is that a fair assessment?
1: I think, yeah, like a, a way to put it would be to get the most benefit out of Brex, you need to care about scaling. The fact that you can start small and go all the way to really big. And that happens pretty often in startups. It's kind of very rare in a retail shop becomes Walmart. So that's not what they're optimizing for. Understood.
0: And you referred briefly to the whole um, lending aspect of SMBs. And I can tell you from my experience that that's one of the segments that has always been underserved, under catered. Um, hard to cater to from the bank side as well. But just talking to this, the core startups or the tech-based um, ecosystem here, how do you think, what is the plan to scale around their working capital needs? Because if you're issuing cards for them, that's pretty much, and there is a line that you have to provide, right? And and for that, you need capital. And how do you scale around that?
1: I think there's two pieces of it. So startups, when they get want to get funding, they have VC capital and that's their main source of capital. They don't really use their credit card as a way to like load money. That's not really the use case. And that's why the underwriting models never worked for them because, you know, a startup might be have 10 people and zero revenue and have five million dollars in the bank account. We wouldn't give them a five hundred thousand dollar limit while versus the bank would give them a ten thousand dollar limit. So that's kind of like was what we were changing, disrupting when we we started. Uh, On And then when companies grow and they do have like more work and capital needs, right, even outside of technology and startups, credit cards are also not the best way to do that. They have like bank loans and warehouse lines and other things that they use to fund their operations. So um, they're using credit cards for that either. So credit is not that big of a part of our business. The reason our customers choose us is because of the software functionality, easiness controls that we provide. Our global capabilities, you know, the easiness for employees, the budgeting system that we have, all of that—not because of the credit. Small businesses, when we serve them, is exclusively because of the credit.
0: I think that's really helpful to hear. I think that's one of the first questions that kind of comes to your mind when you hear a startup coming in and like underwriting working capital loans. So that kind of worries people, but it's very clear that that's not the end goal. And like uh, we'll talk about. Uh, the way your revenue kind of streams into that aspect as well. So, but now looking at enterprises, like what has inspired you to consider upselling into larger companies and how are you going about it?
1: It turns out that when startups grow, they become a large companies, including Brex, right? We're now 1,200 people globally and we have a bunch of different needs that we started. And turns out those needs are the same of any other enterprise. Um, so, by actually growing with our customers, we ended up building functionality that's now you know, useful and and generates a lot of value for any company of any size, right? So we serve since like 91% of all Y Combinator companies are in Brexit, all the way to like large companies like, you know, DoorDash and Coinbase and a bunch of unannounced ones we have in the the pipeline to to share. Um, But there are really, really large companies and have like pretty similar problems that we had are, you know, these startup sites.
0: So obviously, like this is a relatively lesser risky segment in a way, but it also comes with its own set of challenges, right? Like the enterprise business and enterprise basically appear to already have a very long standing existing partnerships with established players. What is your go to market strategy for that segment? And like, how are you kind of scaling up that business?
1: Yeah, and I would say that's probably one of the biggest challenges um, that we have today and we're learning. And the thing is, before we were selling credit cards, right? Like, you just, hey, start you this credit cards, super easy, and now we're selling, like, overhaul your, like, expense and travel software for all employees. Um, so it's a little bit harder on the way in, but it's also harder on the way down. The thing that we're doing is we're actually, like, rethinking with AI and a bunch of other things, like, how do we make that switch really easy, you know? How do we make it so that if you want to switch from Concur to Brecht, that's like a very seamless experience that you can do it in a week instead of, you know, being a project that takes months. And how do we use technology to like automate that? And those efforts actually make a huge difference uh, when talking to these enterprises because a lot of the time it's like, hey, I get that your software is better. I just don't have time or budget to go switch it out. And the least, the more we reduce that cost of switching for them, make it easier for them to switch you know, the more they actually do.
0: So how are you reducing that cost? How are you reducing that friction?
1: Yeah, we just use a lot of software, for example, to like suck in your existing concur data and configuration, right? So you don't have to do that manually to automatically set up all your budgeting structure breaks, create personalized videos for you or your onboarding team. Um, As much as we can do for you, so you don't have to do it yourself, you know, the better uh, we are.
0: And how about the sales motion? Like, obviously... um startups is a very different segment. Are you hiring like dedicated sales teams to sell to enterprises or how are you going about that?
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, we hired uh, June last year, uh, Doug, which is uh, our chief revenue officer. And he was the global chief revenue officer for Concur. So um, he actually is building up an amazing sales force that is able to kind of work in the place Concur and, and 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 all these other all in, in in all these big organizations, so we're actually learning a lot from him and leveraging his talent to to be able to help with this.
0: That's great. That looks like a really exciting journey from here on. So, moving on to like talking about the business segments in particular, let's start with the cards issuance business. So, this is primarily a B two B payments model, right? Like when you say you're replacing a corporate American Express card, you're still replacing it with another credit card, so. How is that different from the existing setup that companies already have?
1: I think when um, when you think about Brex, right, like we're, it's almost like a new way to think about spend management. So you're not buying just a credit card and expense software. You're buying a solution for your entire problem, and that comes of credit cards, expense, and travel. Because you know you go to a trip, you book travel um, through some sort of agency, right? Like you know you could use any of these booking tools, you need to pay for restaurants and Ubers and that goes on a credit card. And there's you know, other things you just need to expense and get approvals on, et cetera. So think of us solving the entire stack for T&E, stipends, procurement, and other kinds of flow, not only just a piece point of credit cards. The way we differentiate, which I guess is the you know, source of your question, I would say it comes down to four things that would do better than everyone else. The first one is we're the only ones that actually have all of that integrated in one place. Everyone else who would have to buy from to suppliers, it's kind of like I was saying in the beginning, that integration usually doesn't work, right? Like we hear all the time, oh yeah, when I swipe in a corporate card, it only shows up two days later to my concur and the data is all wrong, you know, like and stuff like that. With Brex, because everything is one place, everything is very tightly and deeply integrated and, and works seamlessly between each other. So think about it as kind of like the Apple products, right? Like your iPhone just so, does so well with your iMac and your MacBook and your iPad. I think it just works. And we do the same for kind of like expenses and cards. The second thing is we have a very unique kind of budgeting architecture. So, you know, when companies, they actually want to cut costs, right? Or, you know, change spend. They do things, for example, okay, like we don't know how to like cut these costs. So everyone now from San Francisco to New York needs to take two stops. You can only spend $100 on the flight. And they kind of force employees to have this like terrible experience um, just in order to save money, and everyone kind of hates it. What we do is we have these budgeting functionality that you can just say, hey, manager, you know, you're know you the marketing leader. You have $100,000 for TNE this quarter. You choose how you want to allocate it. And what starts happening when you do that and give people real-time visibility on their budget is people start saying no to trips. They start saying, do you really need to go to New York this, this quarter? Maybe I'd rather use that on budget of something else. So instead of reducing the quality of the travel and how many people suffer, you know, and is actually just doing less trips and like empowering leaders with, to basically make decisions on how to spend the money. And that's a lot of where the name Empower comes from. So they can decide hey, do I want to spend my money on this or not, right? And have that kind of like real-time disability. Number three, differentiation is around employee experience. So a lot of times, you know, like um, everyone just hates concur, right? Like doing your expenses, you probably have this thing. It's just really hard. You lose your receipts, et cetera. With Brex, we try to streamline that the most. How can you just swipe your card and that's it? No need to fight a memo. No need to get a receipt. No need to put a bunch of other stuff in it. Just swipe and you're done. And for the manager, you know, you don't need to review 100 different Ubers that, you know, you trust their team. You can just get flagged things that are out of policy and why they're out of policy. So you're looking at two or three things and seeing if they're okay instead of like these 100 things. Otherwise, it gets out of process, right? And we believe that like a better employee experience just increases the quality of the data for finance teams, which just makes their job like way easier in order to close the books and keep the company compliant. And lastly is the most global. Like Brex, we built a lot of our own financial infrastructure. We don't use any third-party software, you know, like Stripe or Mercado, or Jack Henry or t any of these kind of like banking as a service or issuing processors. We built everything from scratch, which allows us to expand globally much better and faster. So um, we can actually serve companies in over 35 countries now, including some pretty hard ones. And, you know, if they have local operations there, we can collect in local currency, issue cards locally and really serve, you know, global companies in a really meaningful way. So, you know, those are probably the four main kind of like differentiations that why customers pick price.
0: Well, thanks for that. That was, that was a very, very good segue and um, into the expense management part of it. Uh, this will surely connect with a lot of business travelers in our listening community. So we, having to do your monthly t uh, in my previous roles at investment banks, we actually had a team assistant who would collate all the receipts and help to file them. And like half of it was to avoid, like, to save us time, but also to avoid errors uh, on lining up these items correctly. And even in current systems, right, like you you have some sort of automation where Uber receipts you don't need to upload, but not everywhere, right? With hotel uh, bills, probably you need to itemize your individual items in there. So. What type of advancements are you seeing happening in that space as a business traveler? And like, uh, how far along do you think this could go? Like, what is, what is the ultimate business traveler uh, experience going to look like?
1: I think the brecks is already very close to what it's going to look like. It's swipe and go. We will get the receipts for you automatically. A lot of it because we have this thing called Level 2 and Level 3 data, which is because we're both the card and the expense software. We get a lot of data from the merchants of the itemized receipts. And then we can use the to even enhance that data generate even better and more thorough receipts um, so you don't have to do it right and we have a bunch of other ways to get receipts as well partnerships etc but getting receipts not having to get receipts is like one of very important your memos right well, what was this we can you know do a lot of stuff to generate that automatically hotel folios we get that out auto- if you book with Brex travel we get all that automatically for you you don't have to do it we itemize it for you we only So you actually, we can tell like, you know, what's the minibar versus like, what's the actual um, hotel night. So I think that the experience that everyone should strive for is just swipe and that's it.
0: Yeah, I think that that is definitely something that we'd love to see. And also because it's not just the itemizations, also sometimes the merchant name that appears on your invoice is absolutely incomprehensible. So you have to literally go back into your calendar and look for what exactly did I do on this day and where exactly was I at that time and then only to realize that that time is also not accurate because the system reflected it with a delay. So it's, it's kind of very confusing sometimes for some merchants particularly. So you talked about, uh, you're about your own infrastructure um, for, for payment processing. What does that entail like? Uh, How are you building that sort of payment rail, if I may?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're building global issuing infrastructure. So, and I think the way I describe it is like this, is if you need to build a piece of software just for yourself, it's actually much easier than building it for everyone else to use because everyone else has different requirements, different specifications, different everything. So we're building the best financial infrastructure to serve global businesses, right? And versus if you look at like someone like Thesis or Stripe or et cetera, they're trying to serve so many different customers from the Instacart buyers to the corporate travelers to, you know, like the Uber prepaid account or whatever it is. We're just trying to solve one problem, business credit cards. And that's kind of like where our, our global infrastructure lies. So therefore, when we go to get licensing in a country, for example, that's the only thing we're doing. Much easier to get regulators to approve you for business credit cards, right? Versus for, oh, I can do anything with these cards. When we're building kind of a set of features, we already know all the specifications. So the fact that we're like so purpose-built makes it so owning our own infrastructure allows us to go so much faster without relying on these like external third-party vendors.
0: So you have talked about the One of the differentiation is being your cards being truly global. And I was quite intrigued to hear that for some of the American Express issued cards, they're not technically issued locally. Could you talk to us about like, how is your offering different there?
1: Yeah, so I think there's two pieces. Um, So one piece is, does your card work everywhere? And I would say that, like, MasterCard does all that job for us. Like, you know, if you have a MasterCard, it works, right? Like, it works in those places. And American uh, Express has just a worse acceptance than MasterCard. You know, it is especially globally. In the U.S. it's the same, but, like, globally, a lot of places don't take Annex outside of the U.S. So that's one piece. The second piece is when you actually have global operations. So let's say you actually have employees in the U.K. or in Japan or in Brazil. You want a credit card that you can actually pay in local currency, account for in local currency, be issued in local currency. So you're not paying FX fees. You can put in the P&L of that business. Because if, for example, you have a bunch of employees in Brazil with cars issued in the U.S. and you have revenue in Brazil, you seem like you're way more profitable in Brazil than you actually are because that those expenses are getting accounted for in the U.S. So it's important that everything gets accounted properly and locally and pay the local currency, you know, of the local tax needs, right? Because in Mexico, there's like different receipt requirements that in France and in Brazil and Japan. So having that global platform all integrated into one place is where a lot of our customers see value. Over 50% of our businesses have global um, employees today.
0: Yes, and and I can confirm that as well. Like um, in Asia, quite a few countries American Express is not as widely accepted, particularly like in relatively smaller stores or cities or so. So that definitely is a very compelling proposition. One of the core themes that we are seeing within the payments universe is software embedded payments. And obviously, with your spend management platform, that is a theme that you are playing to as well. It has also led to divergence in payment tech across different verticals. You've obviously picked up the baton on travel. How did you make that decision? Why travel? And also, um, how do you see this expanding to probably other segments or categories in, in within corporate travel?
1: I think the way we think about it is we are solving, you know, one of the core things our customer us for is to solve T&E for them, right? Like they have travelers, they have offsites, they have everything. Rex, I want you to solve to And, you know, we have this kind of all-in-one proposition. So if we say, hey, yeah, but if you want to travel, you have to hire leather company, it wouldn't really work, right? It would be kind of like a disjointed experience. So having this, like, one integrated travel solution um, was very, very important to us. And uh, we solve other things, too, as well. For example, stipends, right? Like, if you want to get us $50 work from home or... You know, like a wellness type in gym, you can do all that through breakfast. Soft procurement as well, if you want to give P-cards to people. So we go more for it, like, what is the use case that people are doing? And what are all the tools we need to do to really help solve that use case in this, like, really integrated manner? And so that's more than it came, where it came from, um, honestly.
0: Well, thanks for that. And... I'd be remiss if I did not talk about SVB having you on this podcast, because Brex clearly was one of the few companies that really shone out in the middle of what was going on. So this was one of the biggest incidents that happened in the financial sector, especially in the Silicon Valley. The bank going down pretty much sent shockwaves through the tech startup ecosystem. This was almost 65,000 startups relied on the bank for operating accounts and credit lines. Let's talk about what that meant, that incident meant for startups uh, over that seemingly long week and weekend. And you were in the market with yours close to the ground. What did you see and how were things unraveling at the time?
1: The way it happened was a Thursday morning, we started to see a lot of inflows of deposits to our accounts. And that was like way more than average, maybe 10 times more than average or something like that. And yeah, there something odd going on. And we started getting some messages about, oh, SVB, there's a run on the bank. People were saying that. I was like, oh, it's still so unlikely. Um, so I called two people that were super new banks really, really well. And I asked them, hey, like, what's the chance of this happening? They're like, very low, like very, very improbable. This is happening. Like, no way. And one of them was he said, yeah, we should probably buy stocking on this bank because, you know, like, um, it's so low probability. People are completely overreacting. And honestly, like, from a technical perspective, they are right. It was really low probability. But then I, I called some other investors who would knew nothing about banking. And they're like, yeah, it's a complete run of the bank. They're going to fail. It's going to go to zero. And I was like, that's really weird, you know? Like, but, and then, you know, my co-founder is probably more risk-averse than me. So he said, Enrique, like, you're being too optimistic on, you know, like, let's uh, let's take the money out. If they're okay, we'll put the money back in on Monday. I'm like, you know, they're right. I think that's okay. The problem was, like, everyone was thinking like that, you know? And... So, everyone took their money out, and maybe they would put back in the monday uh we We took a bunch of money out um and we just saw a bunch of people doing it, but we still didn't think it was going to happen and so Friday morning, you kind of knew that like everyone was talking about it, everyone was taking their money out VCs were sending messages saying, "Take your money out you know and um and then that happens um and we were really sad like s p b was actually our first warehouse line they gave us our first debt uh that have some options in brex and we just thought it, like, it was really sad that that happened to them. And we weren't sure for a while if this is going to be good or bad for Bright because it's not like, oh my God, a ba- banks are failing. Let's run to fintech. You know, like that's not like the natural inclination that we thought people were going to have.
0: Yeah, I I, I hear you. And I was in Polo Alto at the same time as well when all of this was unraveling and uh, I'm a banks analyst. by um, for, for most part of my career, I've looked at banks and I was at Lehman Brothers when it went under. So that definitely had a vibe when people thought that, oh, this is too important to fail and when it actually plays out. So it, it really felt like a very long weekend. Um, and for sure, the impact on a lot of startup founders was kind of heard more in the valley than anywhere else. Uh, we actually published a research piece about how this fallout could lead to liquidity and funding implications for the broader fintech community. Like they had about 71 percent of IPOs since 2020 were SBB clients and there was an obvious risk of contagion. And like I completely was not sure what was going on at the time. But yeah, I, I, I think. The other aspect of this, even with the takeover, is that this is a category that large banks did not have a risk appetite for, even in good times. So what are some of the key lessons that you've learned? And more importantly, what are your clients doing differently after how SVB has panned out?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So the first one is, it was really hard to give you a SVB and bank. They were good. Um... And the reason they were good is because customers back then, they wanted to concentrate their banking relationships in one bank. So they thought, look, yeah, SAB doesn't have the best interface, not the easiest. I need to talk to someone to do everything, but they have the best loans. They have like personal loans. They have mortgages. They have a private bank. They understand my business. They have relatives for VCs. VCs tell me to do it. So if you had to pick one, it was hard not to pick that. Uh, what happened after that was customers don't want to pick one anymore. They're like, I'm done with this situation of picking one. And we call it, we always joke that the week that SVB happened, we saw everyone go to, to JP Morgan. And then the week after was the week everyone was remembering when they didn't pick JP Morgan in the first place. And I think that what most customers want to do now is that they actually want to have multiple relationships. And for us, winning one out of three that they want to have was much easier than winning one out of one. So we just sell them, hey, put some money in bracks, do your payments, do your bill pay, run your payroll, do all the kind of things that you want to talk to someone every day to understand you that gets you. But if you feel better, keep some money in worry, keep some money in whatever bank you want, right? Like and, and just kind of like maintain those relationships. As long as you're not having to pay bills from all of them, because that's will be a lot of overhead, that's okay. We'll we'll automatically fund the money for you to pay your bills here and run your payroll and make sure it doesn't run out. And
0: yeah i mean more philosophically if you think about it like having your money across three different fdic insured banks how is it supposedly different from having that money in one bank and we can argue about that till the cows come home but i think that's exactly the kind of inefficiency that the existing financial system has and startups such as yourself um can kind of come in and fill those gaps so i think let's move on to the to the switch gears to where is the moolah for Brax? Like I understand currently more than half of your revenue comes from interchange. How do you see that evolving? And how is the enterprise software bit kind of uh, reeling into that process?
1: Yeah, we definitely want to like diversify our revenue streams over time. We love interchange because you know it's something that makes sense for the customer, makes sense for us, and it does really well. Uh, you know, we make money on deposits now with interest rates where they are. We we're charging for our software, so we're making a good amount of money in SaaS. So I think it will it will be pretty diversified over time. But uh, Interchange, you know, it's it's where we start. It's probably where it's going to be the bulk of it.
0: Yeah, I, I also foresee like very secular pressures coming on to Interchange within the US. So it'll be interesting to see um, how a lot of payment companies that rely on this kind of transition along the way. And I think the enterprise software bet is a very credible one for you. I think we're running close to time, but I really wanted to kind of Shit. bring in your thoughts for for other startup founders. I think Brex has had an incredible journey growing so quickly, and it is almost inspirational for some of the younger startups out there. Uh, but you've had your fair share of struggles starting out, and might I say, like, you've had to think outside of the box as well. I read somewhere that to establish your brand, you'd spend about $300,000 to plaster your name on billboards across San Francisco in your early days. The fintech startups are, I mean, that's that ecosystem has gotten fairly crowded and top it all funding environment hasn't been easy. Generative AI is the new catchphrase. Like, What is the advice that you would give to fellow and upcoming fintech founders?
1: I would say try to like find something that has changed or is changing about the world and and focus on that. I think that, you know, we have such a wave of fintech infrastructure that. There's going to be so many players that just add fintech to what they do, right? If you look at like Toast or Shopify, you know, they're just out of payments to what they're doing. And I think that's going to be a trend. I think that, you know, I get really excited about things that are just new categories, you know, like I'm on this idea of like the, you know, remote workers that are moving around and what fintech products for them look like, or what is the kind of global cross-border opportunity because that's increasing a lot. You know, I don't know, maybe China's changing a lot of their policies now of r b right? Like what opportunities did that open up? So I would focus on things that are changing instead of trying to find an idea that could have been done already.
0: That's a very, very good advice, Enrique. So definitely new categories are kind of gaining more momentum. The creator economy, for example, has had a lot of interest, yeah, from from a lot of uh, not just fintechs, but even established players. And cross-border e-commerce is another one that landscape is evolving. So, So we're very excited to see some of these new themes play out and so glad to hear your thoughts on these spaces. So thank you so much for joining us today and have a good rest of the week.
1: Thank you so much for having me.